0: Welcome to the weekly appellate report for March 31st, 2017. I'm your host, Brian Cardell, happy to welcome you to another edition of our program. It's your source each Friday for commentary and insights from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient appellate law developments. A good show for you today, we're going to examine two high court cases, one from the California Supreme Court and one from the country's court of last resort. Laura Arnold, Riverside County Deputy Public Defender, will join us first to discuss the California decision, rendered Monday, in which the state high court further defined the contours of Prop 47 by ruling that stolen items that have no legal market, here purloined credit card information, nonetheless can be evaluated by the traditional fair market value principles courts apply in other cases, where pilfered items could potentially be sold above board. That's, of course, important in this context, as offenses falling under Prop 47 that involve less than $950 may not be punished as felonies. The court's decision here, a unanimous one, adopts a practice followed by many other states. Miss Arnold will explain why this approach best follows the letter and purpose of the voter initiative passed 2014. Then, Matthew Blackburn, a partner with Diamond McCarthy LLC, chat about a prominent patent case argued before the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday There, though the question presented is a technical one pertaining to how liberally venue rules should be construed, the answer to the question is massively important, judging at least from the 30-plus amicus briefs that flooded the courts in recent months. As patent suits are tending to funnel into just a handful of federal district courts around the country in recent years, questions of venue have become more critical and more tenaciously litigated. Mr. Blackburn will explain why SCOTA should follow what has become federal circuit common practice and construe patent venue rules more liberally than the petitioners here contend is proper. Before we get to my guest, though, may me remind you first, as always, that CLE credit is available for your having listened to the podcast. Let's find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. With that, then, let's get to my conversation with Miss Laura Arnold, Deputy Public Defender from Riverside County. Very happy to welcome to the podcast. I'm Laura Arnold, Deputy Public Defender in Riverside County. Ms. Arnold, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, the case we're talking about this morning, People v. Romanowski, filed out of the California Supreme Court. On Monday, it's the latest in a series of cases that have reached the High Court, examining the contours and the application of Proposition 47, the ballot initiative passed a few years ago. Um, that initiative, of course, reduced the, the punishment and the, the possible penalties for certain certain crimes, certain sexual sections of the Penal Code. And... The question in this case, the Romanowski case, is whether a particular section had its punishment reduced by Prop. 47. That section pertains to a, the, the theft of access card information. So maybe as we get into this, what uh, what exactly is an access card, and what uh, what is the theft of access card information?
1: So an access card is anything with which you can access money that you have the power to use. So the obvious um, example of it would be your debit card because it gives you access to your bank account which from which you can withdraw funds or make transactions. But credit cards would also qualify as access cards because they give you access to the funds.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So we're not talking about uh, hotel room keys here. That's uh, important uh, Important to keep in mind. Um, so in terms of this, the statutory context we're talking about here, there's some statutory additions to the penal code made by, by POP 47. Um, so those sections are obviously in play and then the section pertaining to, to that. The crime, um, theft of access card information, that section also is important here and the, the court will be examining how those sections interact or if they in fact do. Um, could you tell me a bit about those two sections and what they prescribe and how they're at play in this case?
1: The change that matters for this particular case is the enactment of penal code section 490.2. And that statute changed the way that Theft offenses, offenses defined as grand theft, um, are punished here in California, and they changed the way that they're punished based on the value of the property taken. So that's, that's the most important statute that we're looking at. If you look at the various statutes that penalize different acts and make them punishable as grand theft the content of those individual statutes was not changed by Proposition uh, 47. The change happened with the new, new statute that prescribes the punishment for all of those crimes. So there's a whole chapter in the penal code of crimes that are called grand theft. And among them are the traditional notions of grand theft, like the actual grabbing and taking of something from somewhere and keeping it without someone's permission, That's kind of the classic idea of theft or larceny. But there's all sorts of other conduct that has been deemed grand theft by the California legislature. And it's all punishable by the same statute, which is 490.2. So, for instance, embezzlement is something that isn't classically grand theft because it's, you know, you have the right to something when you take it, but then you keep it. Um, That is punishable under 490.2. The the, um, crime at issue here, which is obtaining and retaining access card account information is also something that is defined as grand theft in the penal code and is punishable as grand theft. So, that the question here was, is the crime of acquiring and retaining access card account information with fraudulent intent and without the owner's permission punishable under 490.2 after the adoption of Prop 47?
0: Okay. Now, uh, important in this case, the defendant was charged with violating that section pertaining to a grand or theft of access card information prior to the passage of Prop 47. So uh, the proposition's prescriptions were not in play when he was originally tried. He was sentenced to a felony. But then after the proposition has passed, he tried to avail himself of the, the resentencing mechanism that it includes, saying that you know, now his crime fell under Proposition 47's auspices. But the trial court denied that petition, um, essentially saying that Prop 47 didn't apply here. What was their, uh, their reasoning or what were the grounds for the denial?
1: Well, it wasn't really a legal, there wasn't, it's really not a legal basis that's recognized. Um, What the court did was the court said this, if your crime had been committed after the adoption of Proposition 47, it still would have been punishable as a felony because the conduct underlying your crime looks a lot more like identity theft, which is um, codified in penal code section five thirty point five, which was not amended by prop forty seven and is not punishable under four ninety point two. Looks a lot more like identity theft than it looks like traditional grand theft larceny. Therefore, you're not eligible. That's sort of what the court did.
0: Okay, But just to clarify, the the section that he was charged under was um, in the forty four uh, e, correct?
1: It was, and so your question was, he was convicted of 484 E, subdivision D, so why does it matter whether his crime is comparable to another crime other than what he was convicted of? Exactly. Right? So, and it really doesn't, but I'm going to go ahead and explain why anyway. Penal Code 1170.18 is the statute that allows people who are serving a sentence to petition to have their sentence recalled. And subdivision A says, a person who, on the effective date of Prop 47, was serving a sentence for a conviction of a felony who would have been guilty of a misdemeanor under the act had the act been in effect at the time of the offense, may petition for a recall of sentence. So you look at the fact that he was serving a conviction for a felony, okay? And then the next question is, would he have been guilty of a misdemeanor had Prop 47 been in effect when his crime occurred? And if the answer is yes, then he's eligible for resentencing. And if the answer is no, then he isn't eligible for resentencing. So the Superior Court of Los Angeles said, yes, it's true. He's serving a conviction for 484E subdivision D, but he would have been guilty of a felony regardless of Prop 47 because the conduct is comparable to a felony offense that's still a felony after Prop 47. Does that make sense?
0: It does. Okay. Um, but that the rationale did not stand up to appellate review. I understand that the intermediate appellate court that took a look here Correct. or overturned the trial court. What was their reasoning?
1: Well, it's interesting because the attorney general's office who represented um the people uh, in the Court of Appeal didn't really focus on the argument that he woulda, coulda, or shoulda been prosecuted and convicted under a statute other than the one that he was prosecuted and convicted under for a couple of reasons. One is that 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 doesn't really make sense because we don't sentence people or make them eligible based on what woulda, coulda, or should have happened. But the other reason is that 530.5, which is the statute that the lower court rested its decision on, doesn't punish the mere possession of personal identifying information, which is what we're talking about with 44 ED. It actually punishes the use. So the Superior Court was actually wrong in concluding that he would have been guilty of a felony, 530.5 subdivision A, had Prop 47 been in effect when his crime occurred, because the elements of the crime of which he was convicted, 44 ED, are limited to acquiring and retaining the information. They don't encompass use. So it just wasn't a very legally sound reason to deny the petition. So the Attorney General moved on to better legal arguments than what um, the, the L.A. District Attorney had asserted in the court below.
0: So then at this stage, uh, you submit an amicus brief after the, the case is kicked up to the California Supreme Court. Um, how did this case come to your attention? Why did you believe it was an important case that merited the the, the effort of your, your office?
1: So there are actually two organizations on, on whose behalf I filed the amicus brief. One is the California Public Defenders Association, and the other other is the Riverside County Public Defender's Office. The California Public Defenders Association has an amicus committee. Um, I am a co-chair, along with Mike McMahon of Ventura County Public Defender. When we see an issue in a a court, a higher court, generally the Supreme Court, um, that is going to have wide-ranging impact on our members, which are public defenders, defense practitioners, and defense investigators, we, we want to offer assistance if there is a perspective that we can offer aside from the perspective that's being offered by the parties to the litigation. So here you have Mr. Romanowski and you have the people and those are the parties to this case, but this case presented an issue that was of wide-ranging importance to the state of California, not just in terms of petitions for resentencing under Prop 47, but also in terms of cases going forward. This case presented not only a question about 484 ED and 490.2, but it also presented a question of how do you value or determine the value of property for which there is no legal market. That's something that California has never before had to deal with. So ever since Proposition 47 was adopted, um, defense attorneys throughout the state of California and judges have had to try and figure out how do we determine the value of something that, you know, if we act that you can't find on Craigslist theoretically, right? That there, you can't say what would a willing buyer, um, what would a willing buyer pay a willing seller on the fair market? Cause there is no fair market. So that's been a, dis- a heated point of discussion. And there have been numerous, I mean, really thousands of cases in the superior courts and hundreds of cases in the courts of appeal dealing with the value of, stolen credit cards, stolen account information, or even stolen checkbooks, which in themselves are just paper but potentially have, you know, a great deal of value. And so that's what we've been struggling with and Romanowski caught our attention because we saw that the court of that the Supreme Court might want to address that issue now rather than have to do a whole nother case about it. Um, obviously, the Court of Appeal didn't spend much time discussing the valuation issue. They didn't need to. It wasn't really because that, the, court, the lower court never got to that. But we were hopeful that the Supreme Court would address that issue. Um, we wanted a workable standard that made sense, not only in cases that were being recalled and resentenced, but also in cases going forward prosecuting this type of conduct.
0: Maybe digging in to your amicus brief, as you say, there's sort of two main points to particular contentions. One is that Prop 47 does apply to this particular crime, the 484E, uh, subsection D, the theft of access card information. Um, What was your argument as as to why that is so? And how did the California Supreme Court come down on that question? What was its reasoning?
1: My argument paralleled the analysis of the Court of Appeal, which I think was extremely legally sound and consistent with principles of statutory construction. What the lower court did, the Court of Appeal, was they looked at the language of the statutes in question, which is the first step always. And you're looking at one statute that actually in the provision at issue, in 44ED, says this is grand theft. The title of the statute shows that it's grand theft. So even though it's not our common understanding of grand theft, when the legislature puts language in a statute that says this is grand theft, and it entitles the statute Grand Theft. We're sort of left with saying, okay, legally, this is Grand Theft. And frankly, Grand Theft is something that is a question of law, right? I mean, it's not something that we, that we talk about a whole lot in our daily lives. So the first step was to look at the language of the statute and say, well, what did the legislature intend? What did they say? And what they said is it's Grand Theft. And then you looked at the language of 490.2, which said, notwithstanding any other provision of law defining grand theft, grand theft is punishable as follows. So it very clearly encapsulates all of the provisions of law that are defined as or that are categorized as grand theft, and that would, on its face, include 484 ED. The only argument really left, if you look at the language of 490.2, is that four ninety point two talks about property. And so the question then becomes, well, is this intellectual property, this is something I can't you know, I can't necessarily touch it, it's information, because that's what we're talking about here. Is information property? And I think it's pretty well settled that information is property. You don't have to be able to touch something for it to be property. And the Attorney General never argued in the Court of Appeal or the Supreme Court that it wasn't property. So As to both of those issues, I argued what the Court of Appeal basically said, and the Supreme Court agreed and went along with with what the Court of Appeal said in in terms of those two arguments. And that left us with sort of the policy-type arguments that the Attorney General was trying to make, because once you get through the first step, which is looking at the language, if there's an ambiguity in the language, then you go behind the language and you look at other evidence of voter intent. Um Here, there really was no ambiguity in the language of 44 ED or the language of 490.2. And the court would have been totally within its authority and, and following the law to not even go beyond the statutory language and look at intent. But it did. Um, and what it looked at the language of the ba- the ballot pamphlet, it looked at other provisions of Proposition 47, and they said, look, the intent of the voters here was to change the way that we punish certain types of theft offenses based on the value of the property taken rather than the nature of the property taken. And so the fact that the nature of the property taken is not an item on sale at Nordstrom, but rather something that is information or you know, an, even an access card itself doesn't matter. It's not the nature of the property that matters. It's the value of the property that matters. So that kind of cut through a lot of the attorney general's arguments. Um, the second argument that they made was, well, but this is a lot more like a possessory crime than a taking crime because of the language of 44 ed which deals with acquiring and retaining pos- or, re- or retaining possession of access card account information. And so... The court, the Supreme Court and the Court of Appeals said they didn't really accept that argument as having much validity because first of all, whether it, regardless of the nature of the conduct, it's defined as grand theft and therefore it's punishable under 490.2, but Additionally, if you go beyond the language of the two statutes in question and you look at Prop 47 as a whole, you see that the voters didn't just change the taking crimes punishment. They also changed the punishment for possessory crimes like receiving stolen property. So it's in no way inconsistent with the voters intent for the crime of acquiring and retaining possession of access card account information to be punished as a misdemeanor if in fact the value of that property is less than $950. The third argument that was made by the Attorney General was that interpreting the law consistently with the language of the two statutes at issue and consistently with the expressed intent of the voters would somehow undermine the policy behind 484 ED. That's not really a judicial argument. Frankly, the judiciary doesn't get to not you know, interpret the law different from what it is because a, the people or their, their lawyer advocates that it, it's a bad policy. That's actually an argument for the legislature, an argument for the voters, when we're talking about the context of an initiative. But it's important to recognize a couple of things. One, the mere acquisition and possession and retaining of this information still is a crime it wasn't decriminalized by proposition 47 it's just not a, a, and it's punishable by up to a year in county jail it's just not punishable by by up to 3 years in state prison any longer and if a person uses the access card information without the owner's permission then the crime remains a felony under a different statute that wasn't amended by Prop 47, 530.5. So there is really no validity to the argument that interpreting 484 ED and 490.2 consistently with the language and intent of the initiative somehow harms consumers. Um, The Proposition 47 is clear that identity theft is viewed differently than other sorts of theft. That is the one time where the nature of the theft does matter regardless of the value of the property taken. So the Supreme Court recognized that and rejected that argument as well.
0: Yeah. So notwithstanding those contentions by the state, the Supreme Court determines that Prep 47 does cover this crime, Forty Four. E Subjection D. But of course, that's only the the first step here. So now if Prop 47 covers this crime, what's left to determine is is the value of um, access card information. If it's less than $950 and that falls under Prop 47's prescriptions, if it's more, then it can be punished as a, a felony. So as you say, this question has stymied lower courts. How exactly do you do you evaluate the taking of someone's information? Um, and as you've hinted at, that inquiry is separate. The act of taking that information is separate from using it. And so we're not, say, if someone had taken a credit card and then spent, you know, used it to spend $5,000, it would be sort of easy enough to say, well, okay, they gained $5,000. But we're just looking at trying to value the simple taking, not the actual use, correct?
1: Right. The actual taking of $5,000 is grand theft still after Prop 47. It's the separately punishable crime um, it's not the crime of acquiring and retaining access card information, right? So, if a person acquires and retains access card information and then uses that information to commit another crime, which is still a felony, then they are potentially liable to felony punishment for that, even after Proposition Forty Seven. The question really here is where the o- where the only thing that is being addressed is the possession of the information or the card itself, how do you value the information and the card itself? The courts have received a lot of different interpretations from prosecutors throughout the state of California as to how to do that. Some courts have said, well, I'm going to say that the value of the card itself or the information is determined by the amount of victim restitution that was ordered in a particular case. Well, that doesn't make sense because the victim restitution is going to deal with things aside from the value of the card itself. It's going to deal with the value of property actually taken. It can include things like um, lost wages for having to come to court to testify. So the restitution order is not the place to look. Some prosecutors have argued that the proper way to value access card information, or credit card information, or credit cards themselves, is to look at the credit limit for the account holder. So if I have a $25,000 credit limit, then my access card information is worth $25,000 at the time that the defendant is arrested, which doesn't make any sense either, right? Because we know that in this day and age, very few people carry zero balances on all their credit cards. So, whether the limit is twenty five thousand or not, that doesn't mean that I have twenty five thousand dollars available to me. or and in addition, after a card is stolen and the consumer realizes that it's been stolen and calls that in to the credit to the account um, company, the account is frozen. At which point there is arguably no value whatsoever to the card because it can't be used for anything. And if you're at a store, and you try and use it the people will take it from you and cut it up. Um, the third issue is that if a credit card or a debit card is used in a manner that's odd to the to the bank, to the financial institution, they might just freeze the card on their own and contact the the consumer and say, "Hey, your card is being used in, you know, Hemet, California to purchase $500 in groceries, and that seemed unusual to us. We just wanted to make sure, is this you? Did you make this purchase? So there are all sorts of things in place that make that argument really unrealistic. Additionally, defendants never actually know what the account holder's credit um, limit is. So how can you impute knowledge of something to a person who would have no way of knowing that and say, well, he intended to steal $25,000 because the credit limit was $25,000. Obviously, if he doesn't know what the credit limit is, that that argument fails. So that was one that was being used a lot. Um, On the other hand, there were people who argued, as did trial counsel here or appellate counsel here, that the value of the account information or the credit card itself is nominal, meaning it's worth nothing more than the piece of paper or plastic that it's printed on. And that argument doesn't necessarily work either because while, uh, you know, uh, uh, let's look at a checkbook that has um, a bunch of blank checks in it. You know, sure, on their face, all of these checks are payable for no, for nothing, but it's not very difficult to fill out the amount on the check and then present it for payment, at which point it might be payable for something. And there might be a market for stolen blank checks. I mean, I, I don't particularly personally know that, but there might be a market for that. So um, the argument that made the most sense to me after looking at other states' laws and other states do sometimes have to value property for which there's no legal market is to follow the um, the lead of those states and say, well, the way to do this then is to try and follow our fair market value Analysis, which we're very comfortable with, but recognizing that the market that we're dealing with is an illegal market or a black market, and so that's what I proposed to the court, um, and that is the that is the mode of valuation that the Supreme Court adopted in Romanowski.
0: Okay, so explain it to me a little bit further. So just because the the only market that exists for this sort of information is an illegal market, a black market, um, that doesn't mean you can't try to figure out what the black market value is simply because it's not itself legal. Is that the, the long and short of it?
1: That's correct. Other states have done it for years and years, so it has to be something that that we can do here in California. Okay.
0: Now the court follows your suggestion there and, and says to go ahead and try and apply the fair market value approach. It doesn't actually do it in, in this case and to determine what the value of the information was, right? It remains for the lower courts to do that work?
1: That's right, because that was never presented below.
0: And that actually leads me to one other question. I mean, when this case originally came up, it was before Prop 47, before it really mattered just how much um, you could value the taking of this information because you had either taken it or not. That was the crime. So in instances like that where the the matter wasn't at issue, what are the procedural mechanisms? Um, Does the defendant need to have a a new evidentiary hearing to to get into what the value might be of, of that sort of thing?
1: Right. In resentencing cases like this, where the court denies the petition based on ineligibility, based on the crime itself, rather than getting into the underlying conduct, the higher courts aren't in a position to make any factual determinations because there's nothing that was presented below from which those determinations can be made. And factual findings really are best made by the trial court. So here the court kind of ended the conversation before anyone was able to get into what is the value of this stolen access card account information. So the appropriate thing procedurally then is for the Supreme Court to remand it or the appellate court to remand it to the trial court so that evidence can be received and a court can make a determination regarding what, how to evaluate this particular piece of paper. Um, Or information or credit card and one of the things that the court really talked about was there's all sorts of things that You know, we might want to know like whose credit card is it if it is the credit card of a movie star in itself That has value just because of whose credit card it is regardless of whether the account has been frozen if I'm holding on to, you know hugh jackman 's credit card and i 'm going to sell it, there is a market for that, and that is property that has a value, um, but if it 's you know not a famous person 's credit card and it 's just you know Joe Schmot citizens' credit card, then the question's really going to be what can you get for that in in this case, I think it was Los Angeles County in Los Angeles County on an illegal market, and the way that that 's going to have to be proved is by um, evidence like. There are actual publications about what the illegal value of a stolen credit card is. I mean, you can find them on Google. Believe me, it's far less than $950 because if someone had $950, they wouldn't need the stolen credit card. So that's sort of, you know, the irony of all of this. Um, but also there are financial crimes detectives who have years and years of experience investigating this type of stolen financial information information conduct and they've spoken with people and they find out what what did you buy this for where did you get this how much did it cost and who who did you buy it from or there's the larger rings of identity theft rings where they sell um, information regarding people on a larger scale and that information is purchased so there are definitely experts in the field who can give opinions on this and there are publications that the court can take judicial notice of and rely on, on making the findings. My guess is going to be, based on the research that I've done, that in the general average situation, one stolen credit card or the stolen access card account information for one average individual is going to be far less than $950. But in a case where a person has 15 or, you know, a larger number of, of cr- stolen credit cards from different people, that might be different, and in a situation where there's something inherent to the the cardholder that makes them special and makes and creates a market simply for their their stuff, then the answer is going to be different as well.
0: You uh, obviously in- endorsed the the outcome here, the unanimous opinion by the California Supreme Court. Why, broadly speaking, do you think this is the the proper application of that ballot initiative?
1: I mean, aside from the legal analysis being rock solid. Um, I think that it's the proper application because it's completely consistent with the intention of the voters in adopting initiative. Proposition 47 basically said we are tired of spending a ton of money to imprison people for these relatively low-level nonviolent crimes, which fall into three different categories, possession, theft, and drugs for personal use. We have found, the research shows very clearly, that prolonged incarceration of individuals who commit who commit these types of crimes does nothing to prevent reoffense. In fact, the recidivism rates of this population are higher than any other population of criminal offender. And the time that they're in prison or jail, while it keeps them from pre- committing new crimes during that time period, it causes all sorts of other sociological impacts to them to them and to their families that actually increases crime on a larger scale and a generational scale. So the voters said, we want you to stop using the money, public safety money to incarcerate these folks. We want to get savings from that and we want to divert those savings into crime prevention, into rehabilitation and into services for victims. So that's what Prop 47 was about. Um, Here, this is a crime that is falls directly into two, actually, of the three categories, both possessory offenses and low-level theft offenses. It's, while uncomfortable to think that anybody has your access card information, it's very uncomfortable and nobody likes identity theft. Um, On a scale of crimes from murder to possession of access card information, it's pretty low scale. And while it's still punishable by up to a year in county jail, the voters said we don't want people going to prison for this anymore, except with certain disqualifying prior convictions, where that's fine. Um, so what the court did here is it looked at the language of the statutes in question, it looked at that intent of the voters, and it said this is not only what the what it's what the initiative says, it's what the voters clearly stated that they intended when they enacted this law. So whether or not everybody likes it or whether or not there are arguments against it from a policy perspective because identity theft is different, that that's kind of irrelevant to where the, what the court needs to do when presented with an issue like this.
0: Okay, maybe last one. Um. For an attorney practicing in, in this area of law, what are the, the most important takeaways to know? The, the West had notes? a couple of things that someone should take away from this ruling.
1: I think the most important thing to take away from Romanowski is that for the first time in California's history, criminal law practitioners on both sides need to become competent and skilled at valuating property for which there is no legal market. That's new for us. So. Both sides, prosecution and defense, are going to need to begin to identify experts who are qualified to provide this sort of information in the criminal justice setting. Um, They're going to have to look at, there'll probably be some more research done and more articles posted um, on the Internet so that people can find that information more readily. And I would expect that when police arrest a person for possessing Um, access card information or a stolen credit card, they're going to ask them, how much did you pay for this? (laughs) Where did you get it? Who did you get it from? And how much did you pay for this? Uh, Because that's all of a sudden going to be something that's going to be relevant in deciding what the value of that property is.
0: Okay. Well, yeah, certainly an area of law that that seems to still be taking shape. Um, Ms. Laura Arnold, Deputy Public Defender, Riverside County. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it.
1: Okay. Thanks, Brian.
0: That was Laura Arnold, Deputy Public Defender, Riverside County Public Defender's Office. We'll move now to my chat with Mr. Matthew Blackburn, partner with Diamond McCarthy LLC. Very happy to be joined now by Mr. Matthew Blackburn. He's a partner with the litigation boutique Diamond McCarthy LLC in San Francisco. He's a registered patent attorney with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office and serves as the chair of the uh, Patent Litigation Committee for the ABA's Intellectual Property Law Section. Mr. Blackburn, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks very much, Brian.
0: So we're talking about a U.S. Supreme Court case argued this week um, dealing with patent law and, and venue and the, the potential intersection and cooperation of a couple of, of statutes. It sounds like a bit of a technical issue, but as we'll talk about more, it's certainly riveting the attention of a lot of very prominent parties around the country. It's received a, a ton of um, amicus briefs and so um, clearly an important issue here. Um, maybe starting at the beginning here, we're going to be chatting about a couple of different sections of the U.S. Code, Chapter 28. One is Section 1400B that deals specifically with venue and, and patent cases, as I understand it. And it was codified in the U.S. Code in the 40s, but had a predecessor, I believe. Could you tell me a bit about a bit more about Section 1400B as is it in play here?
2: Sure. So, so generally that's referred to as the patent venue statute, and, and it basically sets forth the places where you're supposed to bring patent cases and uh, what it says is that you, you're allowed to bring it wherever the defendant resides or the defendant has committed acts of infringement and has a regular and established place of business so those are the two, two situations where you're allowed to bring the case and uh, um, it's actually when it was first passed in 1897 it was actually a broadening of venue um, for patent cases in order to facilitate them to be brought all over the country, um, but as as time has passed uh, in the last really 15 years, we've seen some problems arise from from its fairly broad application.
0: So now the other statute issue is section 1391 C, and that deals with many more broadly, I think, outside of the, the patent context. What does that section provide for? And I believe in the column that you contributed to the Daily Journal, you explained that that section has been amended a few times since its original enactment, and those amendments come into play in this litigation as well. Can you tell me a bit about those?
2: Sure. So, um, 1391 is the general venue statute, and I, I think it's got uh, four parts. And um, it it has definitely been amended uh, many times. Um, Most recently, I believe it was in 2008 and 2011. And uh, what 1391C does is it basically defines what residence means. Um, And it, it it defines it very broadly to mean it's anywhere where you can get personal jurisdiction over a defendant. And so if you put that gloss, that 1391 gloss over 1400, it means you can bring patent cases really anywhere in the country where you can get personal jurisdiction.
0: Because the section 1400 B says you can sue those parties where they reside, and 1391 says they reside in any place where the court has personal jurisdiction.
2: Correct. And so so, so where that gets to be a problem is, is, is then patent owners, when they're bringing their cases, they have a lot of flexibility of where to bring them. And so so a lot of people bring them in, in really four or five judicial districts.
0: Sure. You know, we'll get more into how there's been sort of a concentration of patent cases in particular, sometimes out-of-the-way areas. But maybe framing the question here briefly, it sounds like the, the petitioners um, are, are making the case that that Section 1400B is just the, the sole and exclusive provision governing venue. So you, you do not want to, to inform it with 1391. You don't want to broaden it out with 1391. Is that the question that's at, at issue here?
2: So that's right. And it, 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 I don't want to get too much into uh, minutiae here, but but unfortunately we have to go back in history a little bit. So um, there have been some Supreme Court cases that have considered whether or not 1391 has any application in the context of section 1400 so what provisions in the general venue statute will impact the scope of the patent venue statute and the, the, the most prominent case is um, one called um, Forco and then there's an older one called Stonite, and then there's another one called Brunette and they basically all stand for the proposition that the Supreme Court didn't feel that that it was appropriate to modify 1400 based on the provisions that were in 1300, and and these cases were all somewhat older. They're they're from the, the the 1940s and earlier, and so that's where the amendments that were made to 1400 more recently become very important.
0: This sounds like a somewhat technical and procedural issue, but it, as I mentioned, it's received a, the court has just a ton of amicus briefs from major, major players here, like the, um, the American Bar Association, the company GE has submitted an amicus brief. So why, why are there s- so many major entities that are involved in, in how this, uh, this case turns out?
2: It, it really has to do with the, the crush of patent litigation. And so you see um, a lot of, of major tech companies that are being sued, not where they're actually doing business, not where their headquarters is. Uh, but instead, a lot of them are being um, sued in the Eastern District of Texas, for example, um, in very small towns like Marshall, Texas. And so you you have a situation where where these companies feel like they're being dragged into um, what they perceive as a as an unfriendly forum to litigate a patent issue that's that in their mind isn't connected to that forum. Um, one of the ironies of of this TC Heartland case is. Uh, and, and, and that problem is particularly um, uh, acute when you're dealing with with what people will call patent trolls or non-practicing entities, who maybe incorporate in in the, at the, at the Eastern District of Texas. But the irony of this case is that TC Heartland was sued by by Kraft, so it was sued not by a patent troll but by by a real operating company, and it was sued in Delaware. Uh, not in in, uh, in Marshall, Texas. So it's a bit of an, an odd case to find its way up to the Supreme Court on this issue.
0: I think just as a, as a follow-up, it seems like there's a couple of other ways this case is a bit unique. Isn't one fact also that the statutes we're talking about a bit deal with like, corporate dependence, but uh, T.C. Heartland here was, again, unincorporated or an L- LLC, and so that also made uh, this a bit of a curveball as well. That's exactly right.
2: So if you, if you look at uh, 20 at U.S.C. 1391, um, Part C sort of defines residency for for venue, and and it's it's very clear that it, it distinguishes between um, you know natural persons and then corporate entities and and basically foreigners. Mm-hmm. And um, I think when the issue was initially raised, um, the parties treated Heartland as if it was a a corp an incorporated entity. And um, as it's wound its way up to the Supreme Court, it's, it's become clear that it's actually unincorporated. And so it's a little unclear as to, to how those definitions in 1391 really apply.
0: Sure. Okay, maybe yeah, give me a bit more detail as to how this case wound its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, how Kraft Foods came to, to bring action against T.C. Heartland, and, and what the, the procedure was um, before we get to the, the country's high court.
2: So the the invention here, this is obviously a patent case, and the invention has to do uh, with essentially flavorants that can be added to to water, and Kraft has um, uh, several patents on that. And uh, TC Heartland, which is is, I think incorporated or is is headquartered in, I believe it's Indiana, um, was actually selling some of these flavorants. And they weren't actually even selling them to people in Delaware. They sold them to entities who asked them to ship the product into Delaware. And it was on that basis that, that Kraft argued uh, that there was sufficient um, uh, connection to Delaware uh, by T.C. Heartland and it could be sued there because there was personal jurisdiction, because the products um, were shipped there, sure. uh, the products that were accused and, uh, so obviously TC Heartland, um, resisted, uh, based on, uh, a- an allegation that the venue was improper. And, uh, the Federal Circuit, uh, said that, that, TC Heartland was wrong about that. And, uh, that the, um, c. E. Holdings case, uh, c- uh, was continuing to be good law. And, uh, therefore Kraft was correct to bring the case in, in Delaware. Um, and then the Supreme Court took cert, uh, which generally is a signal that the Supreme Court wants to change the law. But it's um, uh, from the recent oral argument, it's not clear exactly what the Supreme Court's going to do.
0: Yeah, that V holding case out of the federal circuit, holding that 1391 does apply to, to broaden out 1400. Could you maybe uh, sum up maybe the, the, the core Arguments for both sides for TC Heartland and Kraft Foods, and what the, what they're relying on, and making those arguments.
2: Sure. So, so you foreshadowed these amendments to um, uh, 1391, and Congress in uh, 1988, they amended that provision and they added some some language at the at the start that said, for purposes of venue under this chapter. And, uh, part of the chapter of the statutes would be section 1400, the patent venue statute. And so, uh, uh, the next year in VE Holdings, the Federal Circuit said that change was intended to make clear that Congress wanted the, the residency definitions of 1391 to apply in 1400. And, uh, and on that basis, we, we basically had a, a much broader personal jurisdiction based patent venue since um, 1989 going forward. Um, and that's basically Kraft's position that that was correct, that, that uh, interpretation. Uh, on the other side of the ledger we've got TC Heartland and they really are making a much more policy driven argument uh, and they're relying on those older Supreme Court cases including uh, the Forco case that I mentioned. And they're, they're basically saying the Supreme Court long ago said that the general venue statute and the patent venue statute are separate and distinct and they shouldn't one shouldn't be interpreted in light of the other. And there wasn't a clear enough record when Congress amended the, the, the general venue statute um, to believe that they were intending for it to change that law that Supreme Court precedent. And then they launch into this discussion about the concentration of litigation really in Delaware and in the Eastern District of Texas and how that's really, as a matter of policy, a bad thing.
0: STICKING WITH THEIR, their LEGAL CONTENTION THERE for a second, when they to cite to the, the Forco case the Supreme Court ruling interpreting these sections, and then Kraft cites a, a federal circuit case, and, and then its, uh, it's progeny, several federal circuit cases, um, I guess why does Kraft contend that? I mean, I said the Supreme Court controls the federal circuit. So why does Forco and Kraft's opinion just not control here? That narrow reading.
2: It's because of the claim, the amendments to the statute made by Congress. So, but for the the 1988 amendments, clearly Forco would be controlling, and we we wouldn't have this sort of national personal jurisdiction based patent venue. But once you have Congress stepping in and saying that. 1391 applies for all purposes in this chapter, it, it signaled, at least in the federal circuit's opinion, that they didn't want to continue to rely on Forca. They sort of made Forco irrelevant.
0: Okay. Maybe getting to the the, the the policy-based arguments. You've said uh, there's a concentration of glut of patent cases that find their way into a very small number of district courts around the country, sometimes in very out-of-the-way places like the Eastern District of Texas. The petitioners and many Amici make much of this. What, uh, for one thing, why do suits find their way to district courts like the one in eastern Texas? And, and what, uh, what are the principal problems that the petitioner and Amici cite as to why this is a, a bad thing?
2: So as to why there's so many cases that get filed in, in the popular districts, there's a really large debate. And that's one of the things that you see when you look at the, the uh, amicus briefs. The, uh, the people supporting the petitioner and the people supporting the respondent definitely view the reasons for that concentration very differently. Um, right now about uh, 40% of, of all patent cases in 2016 were filed in the Eastern District of Texas. Uh, one judge in that judicial district um, had um, 25% of those new filings on his docket, a single judge and so from a from a policy perspective um the way that our you know 90 plus judicial districts are supposed to work is if you spread cases around the country and you get lots of judges confronting the same or similar issues you're going to have the collective wisdom not of one judge or two judges but a large number of judges and so you're going to uh, develop the law in a uh, a better way, a more um, comprehensive way, rather than having a very few number of people involved in, in developing the law. So that's the the, the TC Heartland, and it's Amiki's um, argument against this concentration. Um, the the craft side of of the debate is basically saying the reason why people are filing in in these districts is is because they're efficient in handling patent cases. They get to trial quickly, they limit discovery, um, and if you look at the the statistics, it doesn't actually look like you're more likely to win a patent case in Marshall, Texas, than you are in other districts in the country. It's just it might cost you less to get to to that result.
0: Now, in your column for the Daily Journal, you contend that that Kraft, the respondent here, has the, the better position that uh, the, the venue provision should be read broadly and you bring up some potential undesirable consequences that could result if TC Heartland were to prevail here. What, uh, what are your concerns? Why would it be problematic for the court to apply a, a narrow ruling here?
2: So uh, TC Heartland, if their view is adopted, is going to restrict patent venue. And so what, what, what that would do is it would basically limit you to the state of incorporation um, where the defendants um, are incorporated or to where they they have their um, their principal place of business and are 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 committing the infringing acts, and so you're going to see a lot of cases flow to Delaware because that's where a lot of major companies are are incorporated, and you're also going to see cases uh, perhaps between two Silicon Valley heavyweights, um, Google against um, uh, Apple. Um, um, I don't know this for a fact, but I assume that they're both incorporated in Delaware. There might be situations, factual situations, where that case ends up having to be litigated in Delaware under T.C. Heartland's view of the law. That strikes me as being odd uh, because the, the state of incorporation for a lot of companies really isn't the center of gravity of, of where the corporate activities are. And so having such a, a restricted view of the venue statute may lead to, to bizarrely distributed cases.
0: Um, so you think that, that concern outweighs the concern of T.C. Heartland and certain Amici, e. where they just say it's a, it's a terrible burden to have to go uh, defend patent cases in places like the Eastern District of Texas?
2: So my view on that is that they haven't proven their case that um, the Eastern District of Texas is an unfair venue, and that's, that's the gist of their argument. They, they seem to want to say it's unfair to force them to defend their their cases in that district but again if you look at the statistics uh, defendants are just as likely to win in the eastern district of texas as they are to win in other judicial districts there's not really a meaningful difference in the success rates and so um, they they may not like having to go to marshall texas to litigate cases but they're selling products there and that's why they're subject to personal jurisdiction there so it seems to me like it's it's fair to expect to be to be hauled into court where you're selling the infringing product.
0: Getting to into the, the arguments that were heard this week, obviously there are some some technical statutory issues um, here, issues of statutory interpretation, and then broader policy issues, which uh, which seem to be more the focus of the Supreme Court in arguments this week.
1: Uh, the
2: sense I had and, and um, is that the Supreme Court was was really struggling with finding a reason to to adopt T.C. Heartland's um, argument. They they really did think that the amendments that were made by Congress had rendered those older Supreme Court cases um, uh, less relevant. Um, it's always difficult to read the tea leaves, but that's my sense of where they were going. And so they really, uh, they, they were treating it as a statutory construction case um, and not really giving much currency to the policy arguments.
0: So they didn't seem too terribly concerned about the arguments that defending cases in out-of-the-way places are uh, too much of a burden or anything like that?
2: That's my sense, and and, and again, we'll see what happens in, in the final decision. Sometimes judges are uh, are, are not uh, uh, clear in the oral argument about what they're really thinking. Sometimes they ask questions kind of a, a devil's advocate approach. But I, I did not get the sense that the argument that it was unfair to litigate in the Eastern District of Texas was was really resonating with the panel, with with the court.
0: Maybe just one last one to wrap up. Um, in anticipating this ruling, what um, if the decision comes down one way or the other? Do you think that maybe patent attorneys would would need to know about um, about this case?
2: So I think that the decision is probably likely to come out. Um, uh, probably mid to late summer. Uh, certainly I don't think it'll come out before June. Um, and if if the court sides with TC Heartland, which is very much a possibility, um, what that would mean would be a much more restricted venue and so from a litigation perspective it's going to require uh, patentees to really think and analyze venue much more carefully and you're going to see a lot more cases being filed in Delaware and in the Northern District of California, and less being filed in the Eastern District of, of Texas. Um, and so that's if T.C. Heartland wins. If if uh, um, Kraft wins, what I think you're going to see is you're going to see a real intense effort by major tech companies to petition Congress to change the law. So I don't think that the Supreme Court decision is going to be the end of the issue if, if they decide against T.C. Heartland.
0: Okay. Well, yeah, judging from the, the filings here, certainly a lot of folks are, will be tuned in to see this result. Sir Matthew Blackburn of Diamond McCarthy, LLC, really appreciate you being on the podcast to chat with us about it.
2: My pleasure. I'm happy to
0: do it. And with that, the program for March 31st, 2017 is complete. Take this opportunity one more time to tender very sincere gratitude to both of my guests, Miss Laura Arnold, Deputy Public Defender in Riverside County, Mr. Matthew Blackburn, partner with Diamond McCarthy LLC, to thank you as well. Our listener for tuning in, please don't forget, a CLE credit can be yours. We just take a short true-false test that you can find on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. One time, I'm Brian Cardile. look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.